You're listening to Radio Rounds on WWSU 106.9 FM, Dayton's Right Choice. It's just like in the hospital With its medicine on the airwaves Here come the radio rounds Rounds, rounds, rounds Rounds, We're rounding on the radio It's astounding It's just like in the hospital But it's medicine on the Welcome to Radio Rounds. Welcome to Radio Rounds, everybody. My name is Avash Kalra. And I'm Lakshman Swami. We're glad that you could join us here today. Lakshman and I are third-year medical students here at the Wright State University Boonshoff School of Medicine. And Radio Rounds is a weekly talk show produced entirely by medical students here. It's, in fact, the only radio program of its kind in the country. And we make every effort to explore the qualities of humanism in medicine through various perspectives. I mean, the world-renowned physicians, authors, students, uh, patients, and even, you know, healthcare leaders in general. Yes, and today we're going to be joined by a clinical psychologist from New York City, Dr. George Bonanno. He's the author of a book called The Other Side of Sadness about grieving and, and mourning after a loss. So we'll talk to him about that. It's going to be very interesting to share that conversation with you. Uh, that's just in a short while. In the meantime, Lakshman, how's everything going? It is going well since I finished my step one in the summer. I've had a little extra time off because I'm actually about to start my MBA semester. I'm an MD MBA student, so I will be graduating a year later than my classmates, but I'm looking forward to it, be reading a lot about health policy and all that stuff. You know, that's what's going on with me, kind of still on a break, but looking forward to beginning my coursework. But, you know, I am I am jealous of the experience of, you know, jumping into actual clinical medicine. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, a little bit about what that's like? Yeah, it's, well, you know, I've mentioned it a little bit the last two weeks on the show, and it's been quite an experience so far. Obviously, the first two years of medical school sort of lead up to this. And uh, for those of you out there wondering, you know, in, in your third year is when you start your rotations and start going through the hospitals and seeing patients. So that's what I'm doing now. It's interesting. You know, you learn something new every day. You see interesting patient cases. And really, uh, as a beginning third-year student, you're sort of learning how to manage patients and their care and uh, for the long run. So especially in family medicine, which is what I'm starting with this year. So it's been a lot of fun. And of course, we'll all be sharing our stories throughout the year as we go through our rotation. So you have that to look forward to. Uh, As we move on with the show now, we want to share a story that we came across in the American Medical Association. That's the AMA Morning Rounds this week, a newsletter that we get in our email inboxes every morning. The headline is that scientists are still trying to determine why, why food allergies seem to be on the rise. 
That's right. CNN reports um, it seems like more and more children in the U.S. are developing food allergies. In fact, the number of kids with food allergies went up 18 percent from 1997 to 2007, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And scientists are still trying to figure out why food allergies seem to be on the rise. Mm-hmm. And the authors of one newly published study suggest that the quote decrease in richness of gut bacteria in Westerners may have something to do with the rise. And allergies in industrialized countries, while others theorize that children need to get exposed to common allergens such as nuts and shellfish from a much earlier age to avoid developing allergies. And you know, all of this fits in with kind of what people I've heard of as described as the hygiene hypothesis, mm-hmm. which basically we're raised in such a hygienic, sterile environment that we don't, you know, as kids get to go outside and play enough and get exposed to all these allergens, and then we have problems with them later. And, you know, food allergies are no joke. It's really difficult, even from lactose intolerance, but, you know, all the way like celiac disease where mm-hmm. you can't eat any wheat gluten products. It, it, may, it really limits you on your options, you know, and it, it, it's difficult, very difficult. That's right. It's really a whole spectrum of disease. It's not, uh, you know, just having a runny nose and some itchy eyes. Of course, the, that can be troubling uh, which is for seasonal allergies that people get, but uh, really a wide spectrum. And, you know, just wanted to draw attention to that. And, of course, they're studying it hard at the CDC as we just read. So that's the AMA Morning Rounds for this morning. And now what we're going to do is introduce our conversation with Dr. George Bonanno. Now, the reason why we're, we're interested in speaking with him is because as medical students, even now, we've started our training in dealing with patients. And part of the dealing with patients is dealing with their emotional reactions to, say, hearing bad news or dealing with a, a, a diagnosis of something, maybe as, as something like cancer. And of course, the family members who grieve after uh, you know, a loved one's loss. So Dr. Bonanno has studied how people respond, and uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. What do you think? I think that, for me, this is one of the reasons I went into medicine in the first place, is because I want to be there for people in that moment where they are really the most vulnerable. You know, this is actually, we, we had a session this summer on learning how to deliver bad news and all the intricacies there and how it, it can't exactly be taught, but you have to also know what you're doing and know not, you know, it's, it's different for every single person. One of the things I'm looking forward to, to doing, of course, not delivering bad news, but after that, being there for the patient and really supporting them through that time. Absolutely. So as an introduction, Dr. George Bonanno is a professor of clinical psychology, and he's the chair of the Department of Counseling and Clinical Psychology at Columbia University's Teachers College. His work has been featured in Science, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post, and he has appeared on CNN and 2020. Dr. Bonanno is the author of The Other Side of Sadness, What the New Science of Bereavement Tells Us About Life After a Loss, which describes the sophisticated process of mourning following the loss of a loved one. Earlier, our executive producer Shami Das and I spoke with Dr. Bonanno, and here is our conversation with him. The title of this book that you've written is The Other Side of Sadness. What, what is The Other Side of Sadness? What, what does that title mean? Well, that's a great question. Um, the the title was meant in in a way to to be um, to have multiple meanings um, and to be a little bit am, ambiguous. Um, partly, it it refers to the getting beyond sadness. I say it's getting to the other side of sadness. In part, it refers to also the fact that sadness uh, is is not well understood and that there's a, there are different ways to to understand what sadness is and how it works. That's I think probably the 
the more specific way to say it. And, and there are a lot of myths, aren't there, about the experience of sadness and how people mourn following, say, the loss of a loved one? Yes, absolutely. I think, it's, I think sadness as an emotion is not well understood, and bereavement as an experience and, and the, the, the cluster of processes we call grief, none of those have been very well understood. And I think there's a great deal of misunderstanding, particularly in this, in this culture, Western culture, about those, those emotions and those processes. I know uh, we as medical students uh, sometimes get caught in, in learning about the disease processes, and, and we had this session recently where we sort of practiced delivering bad news to a patient, and uh-huh. a, sort of a standardized patient, to sort of uh, explore the different reactions that a patient can have to, say, in that instance, it was uh, receiving a diagnosis of cancer. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting confronting our own emotions about that and, and seeing how the patient responded. So what have you been able to learn about the ways that humans grieve uh, following a loss. Well, it, it's an interesting uh, example that you you provide. I think generally there's there's relatively little understanding of how emotions work in our daily life and when when really bad things happen. Um and that part of that misunderstanding or lack of understanding is driven some of the misconceptions and myths about bereavement. Um, when bad things happen, in a, in a nutshell, I would say this, when bad things happen, and we can say the death of a loved one is certainly one of those bad things, we hum- as humans, we generally get very upset. We, we have specific emotional reactions for specific events. So when we lose a loved one, generally the most dominant reaction we have is intense sadness, sometimes anger and other experiences as well. And I think right now in our culture, there's a somehow a, a sense, I'm not sure exactly where this came from, but there's somehow a sense that we shouldn't have those reactions or that those reactions need to be addressed and fixed and therapized, uh, that clinicians and mental health professionals need to come in. We see, we see this with disaster now very frequently, the assumption mm-hmm. is that we need to go in and, and dampen down those emotions. But it is because we have those emotional reactions that we're able to cope so well. This is one of the fundamental points in, that I argue in my book from the research is that because we have these intense reactions of sadness, it's why we can cope with loss so well. Mm-hmm. It's a, emotions are incredibly efficient mechanisms. The story seems to be that we've evolved our emotional reactions over time because they're very effective ways to deal with these kinds of threats that the world throws at us. And, and what you're saying is these sorts of emotions are inborn. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's it's easy to jump to evolutionary explanations, and we can't really demonstrate that. But it it seems pretty clear because you can see a kind of a, a continuum of what looks like emotion-like behaviors in animals, and we have very elaborate behaviors of a similar nature. We humans, and but we can ask humans what we feel, and we can find out all kinds of things. The best story seems to be that our emotional reactions evolved to solve these um, kinds of environmental threats. So when we lose a loved one, we have an intense sad reaction, but it's very functional. It's a very effective reaction. It's painful. It's not pleasant, but it's very effective. So if I may, I can tell you what, what sadness is like from this perspective. Sure. When a realization, the news of a loss hits us, the sadness that we have 
um, has a couple of different components. One of the main components is what we feel. We feel intense sadness. And while we're feeling sadness, we turn inward. Uh, we, we kind of withdraw our attention a little bit from what's going on around us, and we focus very intently inward. Uh, our heart rate slows down. We, in a sense, stop paying attention to the world around us, and the world seems in a way to go into slow motion. But interestingly enough, we become much more accurate when we're sad. We, when we're reflective and inwardly focused, we're actually more accurate. There's a phrase that one of my colleagues who studies sadness had used the phrase sadder but wiser. When you make people sad, as in we can do this in experimental paradigms mm-hmm. or you know, any other way, um, when we make people sad, they're actually more accurate in their estimations of probability. They're less likely to use stereotypes and how they judge other people. Um, they even make just out and out uh, you know, uh, estimations of, of geometric shapes and such things, and they do that better. Uh, one of my favorite examples is when people are presented with a, a hillside and they're given a piece of wood that's connected, a board that's connected to a, a monitor, and they're asked with their hands to tilt the board until it is the same angle as the hill, which is a kind of a difficult task. So essentially, by moving the board upwards or downwards, you're, you're um, estimating what kind of an incline you're looking at with your eyes. When people are made sad, they're actually better able to do that. And it seems to be because when we're sad, we focus inwardly, we, we sort of concentrate on the information at hand, and we screen out other kinds of information. Yeah, so, such a complex emotion, and it's certainly something that's hard to study. But in the book, you know, you write very eloquently about your father, and I'm just wondering if you could comment on how much your own experiences uh, influenced uh, your writing of this book. Um, my, my experiences with my father did influence, to some extent, my writing of the book. Ironically, um, I lost my father a number of years uh, before I became a research psychologist, a clinical psychologist, so I really didn't think a whole lot about my father's death when I first began to study bereavement. Uh, my father's death came as a surprise to me. It was something I feared for a long time. I knew my, my, my father was ill, and I anticipated that he would died probably younger than he should have or that I wanted him to. Uh, and I was very worried about what that would feel like when I was a young man. I thought this would be the, you know, the worst thing uh, I could imagine. And I survived it well. I dealt with the pain of the loss and I was kind of uh, surprised that I was able to cope so well with it. Uh, but then I put it, you know, put it behind me and kind of forgot about it. It was only really when I began to write this book that I began to reflect a little bit because I'd also written about a lot of other personal experiences and other people's experiences as well, uh, that it, it, it actually kind of caused me to reflect on the fact that I was surprised that I coped well with my own father's death. Later, we talked with Dr. Bonanno about how he first began studying bereavement as well as the concept of psychological resilience. But I, was, you know, I wasn't terribly enthusiastic until I began to look at the literature as a way to try to decide should I take this position as a bereavement researcher. Um, and when I looked at the literature, I, was quite, uh, I was, became quite curious because it seemed that the literature was very out of date. It was based on ideas that had never really had empirical support. And it really didn't jibe with what I'd been learning about human emotion and about uh, other things in experimental psychology. Uh, so I decided to take the job be- just because of, in a way, almost out of curiosity. And then over the years, 
in uh, doing the research, we tended to do the research broadly. So we tended to bring in anyone and everyone who had had a recent loss who we would bring into our lab and into our interview setup and talk with them. And over the years, I began to see that um, most people seemed to be coping very well, that people were doing things that I that, that were not mentioned in any of the traditional theories, like laughing, uh, you know, like uh, experiencing moments of joy, even as they talked about the, the terrible loss they just experienced. Um, and we followed people over time, and we began to see that people were, you know, quite distressed and uh, going in and out of these states early on. But then the second time we'd see them, a number of months later, most people were doing quite well by that point. And it became clear what we really were seeing was these patterns of resilience. And so we began to then study that more directly and try to map uh, the different patterns of outcome more directly. And that when we did that, we saw overwhelmingly that that was the case, that by and large, most people will get over their losses fairly quickly. They will still suffer a great deal. They will, um, they will not enjoy the process, but they will get beyond it. And so you discuss coping as a very complex uh, intertwining of emotions that allows us to, to overcome the overall, overall sadness that we may feel at the time. Uh, what are some signs that patients or people may ex- exhibit, for example, for the healthcare provider yeah. to, to help us determine whether they are coping adequately yeah. or they might need more encouragement or discussion yeah. to kind of make it through those hurdles? That is a wonderful question, and that's a question we're still trying to get a a better answer to. So I described how we have these inborn emotional reactions that allow us to cope with with loss effectively and other events effectively, but not everybody can. So with bereavement, some of the things that we've seen that inform the the variation, uh, some of it is very pragmatic. Having resources helps. Having uh, a broad, you know, having financial resources helps. Having a broad network of family and friends that one feels connected to that helps. One of the most important factors that seems to inform who will not do well is, uh, for lack of a better word, I would say excessive dependency on the relationship. So, it, it, in other words, that person is means too much in too many ways to the person who who will lose them, and then the loss. So they're too dependent on the person. So the opposite of dependency would be, you know, a healthy sense of connection and attachment and love for a person, but uh, a more multifaceted uh, understanding of the world where there are other people in the person's life who are meaningful and important, and the person is also able to to. Uh, function and care for themselves and the world better uh, without the person. Obviously, you've mentioned a lot about resilience and uh, the way that people cope. And there are some sort of, I guess we can say, variants uh, to to that as well. And I know that uh, there's a term that you coined, coping ugly. I want to ask you if you could comment uh, about what that means. And also um, another variance, perhaps the absence of any grief signs. Is that, that, if that would be normal, if we were to see that in a patient? Okay. Well, um, the coping ugly idea um, is really a phrase I, I, I coined somewhat glibly, um, but I, I, I wanted it to be a little bit provocative because it, 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 I was in a sense going against a very traditional idea in psychology and psychiatry and mental health, which is that a healthy person is essentially perfectly realistic. And uh, there, there is essentially, essentially an ideal of the healthy person that I thought was a little bit too... Um, too perfect. And what we see is that, um, you know, people get by in whatever way they need to get by. And so when a bad thing happens to us, really what we have to do is survive it. 
we have to get to the other side of whatever distress we're feeling, and then usually we're okay. If we don't do that, if we don't get over the initial distress, generally things tend to spiral towards worse outcomes. You know, so if we're if we're so distressed by an event that we're unable to work, then that only makes the problem worse, and we begin to get depressed about that, and we begin to be anxious and worried about the fact that now we're not performing at our job well, or our other relationships are not going well because we're preoccupied and everything spirals out of control. There's a, a classic downward spiral. So really, if we think of it that way, what we really need to do when something bad happens is just get survive it and get back on track. Um, and what I'd, what I'd seen or what we'd seen in our research was that people do this in lots of different ways. And sometimes when really bad things happen, People behave in ways that normally we wouldn't consider healthy, but they're, they're useful and functional during this stressful time, and it does the job. So we thought, well, it's not pretty, but it does the job, and we call that coping ugly. So uh, an example might be, you know, impulsive behavior. If it feels like the right thing to do, you know, and it gets you through, go ahead and do it. Or, you know, uh, I think pre pretty much anything short of harming other people or harming yourself in some permanent way can be potentially adaptive. Um, you know, shutting the world out and, you know, refusing to talk or, you know, completely distracting oneself for a period of time or, or behaving a little wildly or any of these things potentially are okay to do in a stressful situation if they're, if they're helpful. And I think most people know when... Uh, what, when they have, when they can do something that will be helpful to them, to them, and there's a real kind of onus put on it, I think, by the mental health profession, which says, no, no, this is not the right thing to be doing, um, and I think that's that's not useful to think that way. That was our conversation with Dr. Bonanno. He's certainly a really interesting guy to speak with, and we were glad to, to speak with him earlier. You know, Lushman, you mentioned in our intro to to the interview that. We did this session recently on breaking bad news and practicing how to break bad news to patients. And let's just talk about that for a little bit because we all sort of had different experiences, I think. And it was with a standardized patient. So it wasn't real, first of all. So it was a learning environment for all of us, as most of the environment is for the first two years of medical school. And the, the patient that I had anyway had such a visceral reaction, stared off into space for a little while, and then actually started crying, real tears. Now, this is an actor. I was quite impressed. Uh, it didn't feel like acting, though. You know, after a few minutes when you're in there with the patient, it's like it's the real thing. You know, you deal with your own emotions as well, how, the, how they're responding. So, so I thought it was a great session for us to do. And, and really, I'll always remember it when I have to do that for the first time for real. And you know you said standardized patients, and the standardized patients are anything but standardized is what I realized, especially in this section, because I, everyone I talked to had such different patient experiences. My patient was talking about how she was excited to go to lunch with her friends afterwards, and then I'm delivering this diagnosis of malignant uh, melanoma, skin cancer, and she was she was just totally thrown off. She had not the visceral reaction you you were saying, but more just complete confusion. How could this happen to me? Um, uh, irritation and confusion. It was, it was very different. And, you know, we were put in this situation, and like you said, it feels so real so quickly. I mean, you forget that it's it's um, it's um simulated right away. And you're forced to really deal with yourself and say, how can I come across as compassionate without while still being professional? Mm -hmm. And that is really what I think they're trying to train us. And as our, as our clinical professors said, as they were discussing before and after, uh, you know, the, the scenario, 
it, it will be different for every person. You can't exactly learn a way to do it.、Mm-hmm. You have to really read the other person and be empathetic. I mean, exactly. Being empathetic is exactly what's the most important thing to do in that situation, and that can range from you know handing over the Kleenex box to the patient, you know, who's crying and, and、uh, very distraught, to letting them process what you just. Told them by allowing them a moment of silence. I mean, when I, in that situation, gave the diagnosis and shared with her what the diagnosis was, there was a minute or so of silence just so that she could comprehend and, and sort of deal with that on her own. And you have to respect that. Of course, as we talked with Dr. Bonanno, there's many ways of coping、uh, in that situation, and also when someone、uh, passes away, coping ugly. He discussed that and, and how you have to sort of appreciate that. No matter what, that's that's a necessary process that the patient or the family has to go to, go through. No matter how they they do it, whether they shut themselves off from the rest of the world, whether they sort of act like everything's okay, that's just their own way of dealing with it. And you cer- certainly have to respect that and appreciate and recognize those different ways. It's funny you mentioned that the necessity of of coping and these you know how you have to go through this process. Actually, going on right now, they're making addendums and you know alterations in the new edition of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for. Uh, psychiatry is coming out, and one of the big proposed changes is that for major depression, there was an exclusion, the, an exclusionary clause saying that you know if it's within a certain period of time from a bereavement, it's not. It's automatically not considered major、mm-hmm. depression or whatever kind of、uh, depression, depressive disorder, and now they're saying that may not be true. And of course, there's always a lot of debate going back and forth. But just so, just so everyone out there knows, you know, this is something that's going on. How appropriate is grieving? When is grieving inappropriate? When is it too much? And of course, everyone has a different experience and a different opinion on that. It was great to sort of explore this with Dr. Bonanno, and again, his book is called "The Other Side of Sadness: What the New Science of Bereavement Tells Us About Life After Loss." You can check it out. In fact, it has a great cover as well. We sort of discussed that with Dr. Bonanno after our conversation ended, so you didn't get to hear that part. But it's、uh, it's a great cover with a、uh, well. I'll, I'll let you see it for yourself. So thanks again to Dr. Bonanno. So yeah, you know, definitely be sure to check out the book, and of course, join us next week. We'll be talking about、uh, the medical home model. It's been discussed for quite a while here, and it's it's kind of a healthcare system approach to changing the way that medicine is delivered in the country. Basically, the idea is to have a single medical home that will. Facilitate all of the medical needs of a patient, so you would be able to go to you know this one place where everyone that would be taking care of you would be communicating.、It、may not even necessarily be a physical location, but the idea is that everyone involved in your care will be communicating very clearly and openly about your case to allow for the best possible care. Absolutely. So join us for that episode next week, and that's next Sunday.、Uh, of course, check out our website www.radiorounds.org for all the latest information of the show, and of course, that's also where we stream our live episodes every Sunday afternoon, twelve Eastern, and all of our podcasts, one for each episode, available on iTunes. You can search the iTunes Store for Radio Rounds. And of course, on both iTunes and our website, we'll have some of those other special video features that we've been working on producing over the summer and all of that. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at Radio Rounds. You can get the latest news the fastest possible way that way. And、uh, join our Facebook group as well. So thanks to everyone who is a part of today's episode. Of course, Dr. Bonanno, a guest, and our executive producer Shami Das, our host and lead correspondent John Corker as well. 
The production of Radio Rounds is made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage, which was created by the American Medical Association Insurance Agency. The program has very unique provisions, including a $200,000 student loan payoff provision, student and resident occupation definitions, global emergency travel service, and newly added this year, a stress and wellness program. About one in three medical students in the United States are covered by the AMA-sponsored MedPlus Advantage Disability Income Plan. For those of you that are covered by this plan and that are graduating, you have a small window of opportunity, 31 days to be exact, in which to continue this important coverage into residency. You can click the MedPlus Advantage link on our site, radiorounds.org, and go to the Graduating Medical Students section for more information. Of course, a quick disclaimer that the views and opinions of Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the Boonshoft School of Medicine at Wright State University. Thanks again for joining us. Join us next week for Radio Rounds. Until then, I'm Avash Kalra. And I'm Lakshman Swami. And one day, we'll We'll be be your your doctors. doctors. Here come the radio round, 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 round.